good morning, everyone, once again. Welcome to One Life. My name is Rich, and um, I'm one of the co-lead pastors here. It is great to be with you. As you uh, arrived and you got that bulletin, along with the connection card, there should be a little half sheet of paper in there. And um, that is designed for you, um, jotting down notes and ideas and verses and what have you to kind of help process today's teaching. I'm just going to tell you today, there's a lot of content, and uh, I think it will be a useful, helpful tool for you. So I just want to point that out to you right away. Um, And before we do anything more, uh, let me pray. God, uh, be with us this morning. Help us to sense and experience you in tangible ways, be it through our conversations, be it through the words we sing, be it through taking communion, um, hearing from your word, hearing scripture, through your spirit, just move. Help us to connect, help us to hear, and help us to respond, particularly today as we talk about a conversation that can well up lots of things. Be with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So today we are in week two of what we've kind of referred to as a between time, between series. We just finished one called As We Go, where we are looking at the themes of a journey and how we see those come up in Scripture and how they inform us in how we all live our day-to-day life because we recognize each one of us is on a journey. We're now waiting for next week as we're going to be starting our new Advent series called What We Are Waiting For, where we will be looking at the Advent themes, what we're truly waiting for in Christ's arrival, and looking at various texts in Isaiah. So we had this two-week space in between, and last week, Greg started us off in that time looking at missions. And in doing so, he covered our long history as an Assemblies of God church and how we've always had a strong desire to love, support, and send missionaries. And in doing so, he also reminded us of something that's really important, is that as Christ followers, all of us are sent ones. We're missionaries, whether that's to the ends of the earth or right here, right now. And that affects the way we go about our days. Today, I have the joy of teaching on tithes and offerings. Woohoo! Everyone's excited, Um, which makes sense that I would be teaching it, because after all, I've been rich since the day I was born. (laughs) What now? Microphone drop. Uh, Seriously, money, giving, tithes, offerings, not typically the top five speaking topics that we're like all battling over to have. And in fact, in 20 some odd years, it's the first time I've truly taught on it. And uh, the truth is, the conversations about money, when you start talking about it, it doesn't matter where you go and who you talk to, it starts welling up things, convictions, ideas, you name it. And especially in the church, it always gets weird, it gets a little uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. One of the biggest reasons I find that that happens is because there's this type of spiritual battle that I like to call the My Precious Principality. Um, I truly believe it's one of the greatest spiritual battles that we all deal with and it has to do with money and the idea that we think because we earned it it's ours and it's ours alone and so the money we have we get to do what we want so when people talk about money we get defensive our walls go up we get paranoid you name it because we think someone's trying to get our money now the fact is scripture 
talks about money a lot, and Jesus in particular talks about it a lot. In fact, it's the second most talked about subject from Jesus. Number one for him was kingdom of God. Number two was money. Number three was hell or end times. And so money is a spiritual issue for sure. What we do or don't do with our finances is a serious topic. And as someone who does a lot of marriage counseling, a lot of premarital counseling, it's no surprise to me that money's in the top five causes for divorce. And so it's a spiritual issue, and it's a battle that's happening all around. Now, the second reason I think talking about finances gets weird, especially in the church, is because for whatever reason, we never do talk about it at church. It's a very rare conversation. In fact, if you're new here, welcome. Uh, We don't normally talk about this. It's rare. Although there are some churches, it feels like that's all they ever talk about. Here, um, it's very rare. I think in the last 10 years, we've maybe hit the topic specifically like five times. And if you're new here, you may have noticed we don't pass an offering plate. Um, In fact, those envelopes in your bulletin, that's only been in the last two years. Our church has a long history of doing things pretty different with regards to finances. It's always been very personal. It's always been very private. And so now you start talking about it, it's no surprise it could get a little weird. Now, tithing in general is this principle or this practice of giving one-tenth or 10% of all that you earn to the work of the ministry. And most people here at One Life and churches in general automatically think that's what you're supposed to do. And not doing so would be bad. And the question that I have for us today is, is that really a practice for us as Christians today, 2015? Is that what Jesus says we should do today? Or is this this kind of Old Testament law that we're holding on to that maybe we shouldn't be? Or is this truly kingdom of God stuff that Jesus instructs us on? That's what I want us to look at. In order to do that, we're going to do a bit of an overview of what the Bible says about tithing. That's why that sheet of paper is going to be helpful. And for some of you, you're going to hear stuff you've never heard before, and some of you will be review. And I'm asking you to have an open mind, jot down questions and whatnot that you have, as I hope this helps us better understand an important topic. So, in order to do so, we are going to start with the very first time we find this idea of tithing, or one-tenth percent, being mentioned in the Bible. So if you have your Bible, you can turn it to Genesis chapter 14. If not, you can follow along with me. It'll be displayed behind me. This story starts off with Abram, and he has just fought this battle of unsurmountable odds. He's going against all these pagan kings, and he has this victory over all of them. And as it happens, verse 17 kicks in, and it says this. After Abram returned from defeating Kedalamer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shevev, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, later to become Jerusalem, brought out bread and wine as a celebration. Now, real quick, we don't know a whole lot about Mel here. I'm going to call him Mel. Um, What we do see is that he is what we call the prototype, if you will, of the priesthood of Jesus Christ in Hebrews 7. So short version, he's legit, like he's the real deal. And in any case, Mel comes out to greet Abram. And so we see in verse 19, it says, He blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. 
of all the spoils, of all the winnings that he got from conquering all these pagan kings, he has now got all of this. He's become wealthy very quickly. All of a sudden, he came and gave Mel one-tenth of everything. And I want us to note right from the very beginning that nobody told Abram to do this. There is no law. There's nothing that's mentioned before this saying that God says he should do this. There's no record of anything like that. It's a spontaneous kind of response that Abram has in response to meeting with Mel. It seems to be that he's recognizing the truth of what Mel says, right? So an acknowledgement that everything belongs to God, Abram gave one-tenth to Melchizedek, and this was just something that spontaneously happened. Now, the second time the word tithing appears in the Bible is found in Genesis 28, and this time it concerns Jacob. Now, Jacob is on a trip comes to the town of Haran and decides to settle down for the night. He goes to sleep on this rock and has this very crazy, bizarre dream with these angels ascending and descending on this ladder. And then the Lord appears to him in this dream and says this in verse 15 of chapter 28. It says this, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all of that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Now again, there it is, a tenth. I want you to see, again, nobody instructs him. There's no word from God. There's nothing that told him to do this prior to this. This is a spontaneous response. Jacob decides to do this in recognition that God is the one who is going to provide for him and sustain him. And the fact that all that he has belongs to God, all of this moves him to give a tenth to God. It's also important to note that this is the very first time anyone in the Bible makes a lifelong commitment to do this. Abram did it once with Mel, um, but here Jacob says, from here on out, this is my commitment. Now, the next time we see this idea of tithing come up is in the book of Leviticus, one of your favorite books, I'm sure. And um, the people of Israel are coming out of Egypt, and now they are receiving the book of the law. And here we find in Leviticus on, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, that this is now a law of the land. That you must give one-tenth of all that you earn to the work of the Lord. More specifically, you're supposed to give it to the temple. It was one-third of the Jewish tax system in the Old Testament. And there's lots of things that were taxed on, um, but one-tenth of all that they earned went to support the Levitical priesthood in the temple. They were also oftentimes expected to give what they call a free will offering. And those were typically like these festivals or occasions or particularly these major building campaigns. So particularly like 
the development of the tabernacle. So they would have these free will offerings to help build those. And the idea was that those would be over and above what you gave as your tithe. And so it was seen as a sign of generosity. And we've done that here at One Life. Right? When we bought this building, we asked people to consider to give towards that. We have missionaries come and have needs, and we ask people to consider giving towards those. And that's why you see at churches a lot of times they say, we're going to collect our tithes and offerings. The tithes were the 10%, and the offerings were above and beyond that. Now, when we get into Leviticus on, we see that God gets really intense and intent about maintaining this law throughout the Old Testament. Which brings us to the text that is most quoted about tithing, and that is found in Malachi chapter 3. And this text really shows us the intensity that the Lord has around this topic of tithing. That's Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. It says this, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? Which is a fantastic question. He says, in tithes and offerings. What does he mean? In other words, you don't give your 10%, then you're robbing me. Or if I'm leading you to give an offering and you don't respond by doing so, you're robbing me. And verse 9 continues, you're under a curse. You're a whole nation because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse and th- that there may be food in my house. And then it says, test me in this. This is the only time in the Bible where it says this. It's not saying tempt me, but rather try me in this. Live in these principles and see if I am not faithful. Put me to the test, God says. And then it continues and says, And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. In other words, not only will the curse be gone, but there will be this outrageous blessing as well. So I'm not covering every scripture there is on tithing. But you get the background now. You see how it started, where the very beginning was, how we get to the law, and how we've understood it to be. So the question there is now, is how do we relate to this? In 2015, does this 10% law still apply to us? And to understand that, we have to understand our relationship to the law. And so we have to turn to the New Testament to do that. And when we do so, we see that there's an entirely different thing going on. And we learn that there are two reasons why God gave us the law. And I want us to, I hope you can stick with me on this, because it doesn't just apply to the tithing laws, it applies to all of the law. So what we see is that the law has two reasons for why it was given. The first reason is that the moral and ethical teachings of the law were given to us to show us what it looks like to walk with God. What it looks like to honor God in our life, what it looks like to love Because the law is summed up in the commandment to love, right? To love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the law. And the Old Testament shows us what that looks like. It's kind of a guideline to see what it looks like. Now, the second reason why the law was given is that the law tells us what we're supposed to do, but it can't empower us to do it. So it's essentially a bunch of oughts and shoulds with no power behind it. 
And so as a result, what it ends up doing, which is exactly what God intended it to do, is that it shows us that we cannot do this on our own. And so what it does is it points us to Christ. Why? Because it convicts us. It shows us we can't do it on our own. So you get things like Romans 7, where it says the law is given to expose sin and to show how sinful we are. So, so the law is given to drive us to Christ by showing us our need for a Savior. Right? We need forgiveness, and we need empowerment from a Savior, so it leads us to Christ. And incidentally, when you start looking at Jesus, what you find is even though he is the person who brings the, the most amazing grace you could possibly imagine, he also intensifies the law. He says it's not just a matter of obeying these, it's uh, externally, but it's in your thoughts as well. So you get examples like uh, it's not enough for you to not commit adultery, but just thinking about it, you're guilty. Or it's not enough to not commit murder, but just having hatred in your heart is a problem, right? It, it intensifies the law. So you get a picture, right? The law shows us our need for a Savior and how we need to be empowered from the inside out. The law by itself has no power. And so then what you find is throughout the Old Testament is beyond these two ideas is there's this anticipation of a day when things are going to be very different. When things are going to change, a time when God's going to come and do something very different. So you get scripture like Jeremiah 31 that says this, thinking ahead to the future, it's God saying this, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Or Ezekiel, again, God talking about the future. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And this is exactly what happens at Pentecost. This new era begins at Pentecost, and it's all about understanding our relationship with the law as Christians. Because at Pentecost, the Spirit of God is poured out, and God himself takes residence in each of us. And now, all who put their trust in Christ and admit that they can't do this law on their own are given what? A new heart, a new mind, a new spirit— a new set of desires, a new perspective on life, you name it, it all begins to change because you have been made new. Which is why Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Behold, all things are new. The old has entirely passed away. There's a new you in Christ because of your faith in Jesus has changed you from the inside out. The Holy Spirit now dwells within you, empowering you. God enters in and says, I know you cannot do this law on your own, but with me inside of you, now I can empower you and show you how to really love. And it changes everything. And it's no longer about our efforts of trying to do things out of threats or guilt. The motivation comes from the inside out through the Holy Spirit within us. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That's why I believe that holding up this 10% rule, this kind of one-size-fits-all kind of thing, is encouraging the wrong motivation. 
it's kind of like saying, here's the law. Well, you have to pay for your religious duties. You have to pay the cost to go to church. Here's what it costs for you to be saved. That's not the right motivation. Which is why, although the New Testament talks about money a lot, it never mentions the tithe as a rule that's binding for Christians. What you do find, however, are these principles of living and giving, which are not a set of oughts and shoulds that are supposed to cause us to chase after, but rather there's these principles that guide us and help us learn what it is to yield to the very Spirit of God moving within us. And I hope that you can see the difference. So, what I want to do now as we end is look at these seven principles that I see in Scripture. And if you have that half sheet of paper, I'm just going to tell you right now, they're on the back. So you can follow along, you can write down notes. And I'm also going to tell you that the word principle is not the principle we're talking about. We're not talking about all your principles from your schools that you went to. Um, (laughs) Sorry for that. But these are what I would say seven of these principles that help us yield to the Spirit of God with regards to giving. So hopefully you can follow along. We're going to kind of cruise through this. Principle number one, follow Christ's example who sacrificially gave himself for all. Second Corinthians says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What he's saying is, This is what our giving and living is supposed to look like. To be Christians, we're supposed to be discipled, mentored by Jesus. We're supposed to look or be imitators of him. So Paul says, keep your eyes on him. See what he does. He was God, but surrendered to become human. He had these divine prerogatives, but laid them aside to be fully present in our humanity. He's all holy, but he takes on our sin. He was rich in every possible way, yet becomes poor. And Paul says, think about that and go and do that. That's our model. That's how our life and how our giving should be characterized by. And it's a principle that he lays out for us. The second principle is giving is supposed to be voluntary and joyful. Now, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. And I want you to note, Paul doesn't say, I'm going to make up your mind for you. He doesn't say, you need to do this exact percentage. He says, figure it out on your own. And then he goes on, he says, Do this not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So, if you've ever been in that time when the passing of the plate comes around, you're like, ah, not again, didn't I do this last week, right? That's something, sadly, we all get pulled into because we really like our money. But we see that Jesus never does anything under compulsion, under reluctancy, or under pressure. No one's twisting his arm. Rather, the scriptures say that it was for the joy that was set before him. The joy of being able to live eternally with us. For the joy of expressing Love. It's the joy that led him to sacrifice, and so it is to be for us as believers, because the Spirit of Jesus resides in us. So as you stop and you remember that you have a life and you have a breath to breathe, that you get to make a difference in this world because you get to partner with God, which is exactly what Greg talked about with missions last week, 
the joy that comes out of that leads us to become Christ-like givers. It gives us joy. And sadly, most churches treat giving much more like taxation. There's a lot of guilt and manipulation around it, and people never end up really learning about the joy of giving from the Spirit. Now, keep cruising. Principle number three. Giving is supposed to be disciplined. Everybody say disciplined. There you go. Disciplined is a good word. It's not a bad word. Um, Some people like to think of this idea of being led by the Spirit as this very loosey-goosey kind of thing. But Paul has this very different perspective on this. This is why one of the fruits of the Spirit is actually self-control. There's nothing at war with being led by the Spirit and being disciplined or showing self-control. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16.2, On the first day of every week, which in the ancient world was when you got your paycheck. So that's what he's saying. So when you very first get paid, it continues, Each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Note again, he doesn't instruct a particular amount. He doesn't instruct a particular percentage. And he continues, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. What does that mean? Well, he's trying to avoid a situation where he comes and says, okay, guys, time to go. And we're like, uh, oh, yeah, right. Um, I left my checkbook at home. I don't actually use checkbooks anymore. I don't know how to get, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Paul is saying, make up your mind. Think about it. Make a commitment ahead of time. Be disciplined about this. Take it off the top. First day of the week, what that means is in the Old Testament, it was all about the first fruits, right, that you were given because God doesn't get leftovers, right? And the leftovers means we come home and we get our paycheck and we start paying all of our bills. We start doing all of our stuff. And then we have this $5 bill left and we think, ah, that's what we give to God. That's what it's saying is don't do that. And if you don't, you can promise yourself that you're going to be giving God the leftovers. And you can also promise yourself that you're going to always have stuff telling you that's what's more important to spend on. Whether it's your school loans or your car that broke down, your family, you name it. Um, Money affects everything. And he's saying be disciplined about this. And what he's really just saying is don't forget this reality. Everything you have, it's God's. It is not yours. You're just stewards of it. And good way to think about it is think about you being told that you have to hand over all of your finances to somebody else and now they're in charge of your finances but they don't think about your finances they have no budget they don't care about any of those things they're just whatever happens happens you wouldn't like that either it's not responsible stewardship and it doesn't matter how much you have or don't have God's principle is that it's important that we are aware of it and disciplined with using it. We get this. Okay, principle number four is that we should be giving according to our means. 2 Corinthians 8.12 says, For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Again, Paul doesn't give a percentage. This verse does not speak of a one-size-fits-all mentality. Instead, he says it's a proportion thing. As God has blessed you, set aside to bless others. So what that means is for some of you, 10% is going to be too much. You're not getting your food or clothing or shelter, your basic needs taken care of. You don't have any income at all. You've been without a job, you name it. 
And so that's too much for you. Whereas there's others who have far beyond what you need. And so 10% might not be the right amount for you because you can be giving more. And so it's according to your income and what God is doing through his spirit in you. And what it means is that we need to be reminded that, that what really moves the kingdom of God is not the amount you give, but the sacrifice you make in giving it. And we see this throughout the scriptures, this mustard seed principle. It's when the people of God have the life of Christ flowing through them and therefore live sacrificially like Christ. That's what moves the kingdom. It's ex- finances is just an expression of that. Which is why you get the example in Mark 12, 41 through 44, where this widow gave more than all the rich, rich people did. She basically gives like a penny, and all these rich people give thousands of dollars. But Jesus says she gave the most because she sacrificed it all in giving it. That's what moves the kingdom of God. God doesn't expect an equal amount. He doesn't expect an equal percentage. But he is looking for an equal sacrifice and calls us to be living into that. And so are we thinking about the sacrifice? Moving on. Principle number five is that we need to see giving as a privilege. And this one's hard on us. 2 Corinthians 8, 3 through 4 says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us, or they begged literally, for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. It means that if we're understanding this stuff correctly— then giving should be a privilege. And let's be honest, how many of us really think about it that way? There are people in our church right now who do not have their basic needs met. The majority of our people in our church, however, have far beyond their needs met. And that puts us in a privileged position to be blessers. Think about it this way. Name one reason or one thing you did to deserve or warrant or win the right to be born in or currently living in a wealthy country like we do, as opposed to, say, kids living on the streets in a poverty-stricken place like Haiti. This is not a luck thing. You are incredibly blessed. We all are, and we have to be aware of this. We are blessed. And with this, we have this opportunity to use this stuff for eternal purposes, to expand the currency of love, if you will. And it's a privilege, and it's a blessing, as well as a responsibility, which is why Paul says it's better to give than receive. So do you find yourself seeing yourself as blessed? Because it's really easy for our culture to compare ourselves to everybody else who has more than us, You're blessed. We should have a privilege of giving. Now, number six, principle number six. Give with a concern for justice. 2 Corinthians 8, 13 through 14, Paul says this. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed. In other words, I'm not trying to make you poor while we make other people rich. But it continues. But there might be equality. 
At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. And if you go to Acts 2, we get another picture of the church. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And so what we see over and over again through scriptures, the Old Testament, the New Testament, through Jesus' ministry, is that God has this profound care and concern for the poor. For those who don't have their basic needs being met. And one of the jobs of the church is to make sure that this is happening. It's our responsibility to care for those in need and steward our finances with the idea of justice in mind. So we need to ask ourselves, am I even considering justice and how to help those in need in terms of my giving? That's a big question. Got to get to these principles. This is the last one. Principle number seven, give with expectation. And this is simply this principle that we've talked about over and over again. It's this idea that God is still saying to us, 2015, test me in this. See if I mean it, right? In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And what I want you to see, this is not this magical formula, but it is a principle in life. And Paul continues in verse 11 saying this, You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion, and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. In other words, Scripture says there's nothing more fulfilling and enjoyable and life-giving than living in generosity. Why? Because when you do so, it comes back to you. It's amazing. You will be blessed as well. God loves it when we live out our actions like him. And so we can give with expectation. Now, uh, we are tight on time, and I've given you a ton of content. I want to get back to our question. What is this relationship that we have as Christians today to this idea of 10%? On the one hand, I want to say emphatically, I do not believe for a second that there's any precedent to saying that this is a law that applies to us. In fact, I think the spirit of the New Testament is actually against this being a law, and therefore I don't think it should be used as a litmus test as to whether you are right with God or not. When you apply to be a member here at One Life Community Church, on that application that you fill out, it will ask you about giving. It does not ask if you are giving 10%. We ask you to describe your giving. And the reason why is because we know for some of you, you're barely getting by. And so giving is going to look a particular way. And for some of you, you're making more money than you know what to do with, and giving is going to look different, and that can change. Some of you, in the time I've been here, had a great job and lost your job for two years and now have a job. And so giving is going to change. As a church, we are far more concerned that God is working in your heart and that you are understanding giving in a healthy, biblical mindset and responding out of that. We're not looking to compare everyone's 10%. What I want you to hear, though, is that tithing is, however, a principle 
or a pattern that we see even before it becomes a law in the Old Testament. And it says something to us, and it can help us kind of like a divine kind of benchmark that helps protect us from the pull of the world's way of living. It's not a legal rule or law, but a principle that helps us. So, for example, if we're getting all of our needs met and beyond, and we are not willing to consider giving 10%, then there might be something blocking our responsiveness to the work of the Spirit in us. Another way of saying this is is that God is far beyond provided for your needs, and the thought of giving beyond 10% seems impossible or outrageous. That might be something to wonder about as well. And what I want us to hear is that as Christians, we are called at the end of the day to follow the Spirit in our giving. That's it. So, So as we end, uh, I want to encourage you all to talk to God regarding how much you give, and not just once, but often. If you made a decision 12 years ago when you got that job to do this, that is fantastic. But the work of the Spirit is an active thing all the time. And these principles are things that we should be engaging with and asking about and praying about on a regular basis. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. I appreciate you all sticking with me with all this content. As they do, they're going to lead us in a song in just a moment, but I would like to invite you to pull out your connection card. I have a couple questions. Most of them are like one-word answers, so you should be able to get to them. And I would really love to hear from you. And before I do, I want you to hear, our church does a great job with giving. Um, but I want us to see something. If everyone's doing a great job of just doing 10%, that is fantastic. But I'm actually not concerned if we're doing 10%. I'm just concerned that we're all listening to the Spirit and responding. Do you see what I mean? That is going to be far more healthy than a church full of people who are just doing it out of a law. And I actually believe that God has greater things in mind for us if our church is responding with our finances that way. And that's what I want us to be listening to the Spirit about. So, connection card questions, really quickly. Yes or no, would you say you need to grow in your giving? Some of you might feel really healthy in this, and so by all means, you don't need to. That's great. If this is something you've been challenged by or you've learned something, I would love to hear from you. Yes or no? Boom. Number two, which would you say best describes how you have commonly responded to the idea of tithing? Have you found yourself generally going, this is the law, this is what we do, this is how it's been done forever, that's why I do it, or do you see it more as a principle? could write one word or the other number three of the seven principles which one or ones do you feel you need to grow in so hopefully in those seven there's one that maybe stuck out to you maybe you never even heard it before you maybe haven't pondered it maybe you you like oh i know this but i've never prayed through that i would love to hear and finally it's something i'm asking us all to do it's not as easy as it is to say but is will you commit to making space on a regular basis to listen sensitively to the Spirit's leading with regards to giving and to respond. Ask yourself on a regular basis, Holy Spirit, how would you like me to respond? How would you like me to give? So I would love your thoughts on those as you leave today. If you could drop those cards in one of those wood boxes, that would be fantastic. And um, let me close this in prayer and 